Forget about the crowds and remember what got you here. Focus on the fundamentals that we've gone over time and time again. And most important, don't get caught up thinking about winning or losing this game. If you put your effort and concentration into playing to your potential to be the best that you can be, I don't care what the scoreboard says, at the end of the game, in my book, we're going to be winners. Okay? All right! Welcome to the One Broken Cog Podcast. Join John and Brian as they share small adjustments that lead to major impacts. One Broken Cog Podcast 2021, here we come. We are headed straight for the intersection of Success Avenue and Wealthy Lane. I'm hoping all of you are going to join us for a big party there. Now, Emily from Minneapolis, Minnesota sent in a question to results at OneBrokenCog.com. She asks... Why do companies avoid addressing staggering employee turnover and make excuses instead of fixing the issues causing it? When are they going to realize it's a them problem, not an us problem? Well, Emily, you bring up an interesting point. Now, approximately 3 million U.S. workers leave their job each month. And yes, that's voluntary turnover. Now, of course, some turnover is unavoidable. I mean, every organization is going to experience unwanted separation at one point or another. But 3 million is a staggering number and is a serious cause for concern for employers and recruiters. Well, my guest today is going to give her point of view on that question and many more as her expertise is helping companies on exponential growth trajectories to create talent strategies by hiring, retaining, and developing a pipeline of top talent at warp speed. And she is none other than Jennifer Thornton. Now, Jennifer has developed her expertise in talent strategy and leadership professional development over her exciting 20-plus year career as an HR professional. She's led international teams across greater China, Mexico, the UK, and the U.S., expanding into new markets, managing franchise retailers, and developing key strategic partnerships, all while exceeding business objectives and financial results. Now, the rapid growth of her consulting firm, 304 Coaching, has been largely due to Jennifer's unconventional approach to building innovative workforce development solutions for companies who are facing breakthrough growth and accelerating hiring patterns. She's a sought-after business strategist specializing in startups and large value-based organizations. She assists her clients in building talent strategies that complement their business strategies to ensure exponential growth. Now, Jen lives in Texas with her family and rescues. In her free time, she enjoys reading, historic preservation, remodeling her lake home, and spending time with friends. Jen, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome to the One Broken Cog podcast. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Now, Jen, you live in Texas. Were you born and raised in Texas, or are you a transplant like so many of my former neighbors here in California? <laughs> I am, too, a transplant. I think most of us are transplants in Texas. But yeah, I've lived here for, gosh, 20, 21 years. But yeah, still a transplant. Wow. So they haven't fully adopted you yet, huh? No, it, it takes a few generations, I think. Oh, my goodness. Now, <laughs> rescues, I assume you're referring to dogs, right? I am. Um, dogs, in fact, we um, have a foster as we speak that we're working with. So yeah, we we enjoy helping um, those four-legged friends. That's great. Yeah, I actually have an English bulldog from the Bulldog Rescue here in California. He is great. Really great. Good. Yes. Everyone should rescue. They It's a different kind of love when you save a life. It's true. And you know, they always say women like to rescue lost puppies in the form of men, but it's much, much better to start with a dog first, right? Yeah, much better. They're easier to train too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Jen, you've spent many years in HR. What led you to the decision of leaving the workforce and starting your own business? 
So, you know, my trajectory into HR isn't typical. You know, I didn't go to school to be an HR practitioner. I didn't grow up in HR. Um, I actually grew up in the operations side of the business and the retail industry. And, you know, I got my results in a way that my business partners didn't. And I wasn't competitive. I didn't want to win because I just wanted to win. I loved having incredible teams, developing teams, and I love the strategy of thinking about each hire and where was that person going to go and how did you motivate them to get what you need and how did you pair people up? Like I was fascinated by human interaction and that's how I got my results. I was always a top performer, but I got it through talent and not because I just wanted to be number one. And so, you know, half my career was spent in the operations side. And then because of my passion around teams, I moved into HR as a talent strategist. And so, you know, that's where I spent the second half of my life um, or my typical, you know, corporate career. And it was a ton of fun. I learned a lot. But what I learned on the operations side and what I learned in HR is the same thing. And when you put together a new product or a team or, you know, launch a business, anything you try to do, if you do not have a talent strategy that matches your business strategy, you won't make it. You will fail. And every time I was part of something new, we failed because we didn't have the right team or we succeeded because we did. And, you know, I got to that point in my career where I wanted to do my own thing. I'd been, you know, you know, working for other people for so long. And I wanted to do what I loved, and that was talent strategy. So that's the birth of 304 and what we do today. That's awesome. How many companies do you think actually have a talent strategy? Oh, my gosh, that's such a great question. I've never been asked that before. Um, Not very many. And it's interesting, you know, you think about startups and they're going to, you know, they spend just so much time getting ready to pitch for funding and people will hand over millions and millions and millions of dollars, but they never say, okay, great. Well, who's actually doing this work and how's this work going to get done? Now they'll worry how the widget gets from point to A to point B, but then who moves that widget and who's being, um, who's responsible for how we work and creating environments. And, you know, that's never part of of the pitch. And I, I think that's a disservice um, because if you're going to, you know, ask for several million dollars, you probably should know how you're actually going to get the work done. Why do you think that is? Do you think it comes from the fact they just don't know about this or it's just arrogance thinking that their way is the better way? I think that no one, I think it's because no one goes into business because they want to hire a great team. No one wakes up and goes, you know what, I'm just going to pull a bunch of really cool people together that are smart and work well together and then just see what we do. Everyone starts a business because they have a service or a product, and then they have to create a team to make that happen. So it's just not kind of the first way we think of things. And if you are a founder or a leader, chances are you know, you have been um, creating business plans that were very financially minded. I mean, that's the right thing to do. They have to be financially minded, but it's just not the way that um, people have been taught to work. They've been taught to take care of the numbers, but to take care of the numbers, you have to have the right people. And, you know, you were saying in the opening, you know, 3 million people change jobs every year. And the statistics show that it costs one and a half times someone's salary. So if you have a 
a, you know, $100,000 employee, when they leave, it just costs you $150,000. And if you want to think about finances and the importance of finance and, and making sure you're financially healthy, you have to think about retention and turnover because not only does it keep you from meeting your business goals, it also costs you a ton of money. No, it really does. And you would think to yourself, if some of these business leaders had been a part of a fantastic team with a great dynamic, they would want to replicate that in their own organization. And you always hear the word pivot, right? That's the word of the year. I wish they could <laughs> yeah. flush it down the toilet this year. But you know, you use that word all the time, you know, pivot in your business. Well, why not with a team? If you see that you're experiencing so much churn, it's costing you so much money, don't you think you would address that or pivot there? You have to wonder. So that kind of leads me to my next question, Jen. From what you've witnessed in your experience, what do you think is the greatest challenge in hiring and retaining top talent? Oh, gosh. I think the number one issue is that people don't have clarity on how they want the work done. And in fact, I had this exact conversation with a client today because we're starting to make some really good hires and things are starting to come together and you just can see the relief on their face. And they're like, man, it's coming together. I'm like, that's because you have clarity. So when I talk about clarity around the work, you know, you can talk to five different candidates that have similar experience, but how they show up in the work environment will be unique to them. Are they one that, you know, they someone who has a big entrepreneurial spirit and loves to break what works just to see if they can build something better? Are they someone who is um, highly assertive, methodical, patient, and impatient. You know, those are the pieces that people don't really think about how will we work together. And so they don't hire, they don't focus on bringing candidates in that work in the way that the company works so that they're more efficient and they're more, they're happier and they're just more connected to the, to the objectives. That's a great answer, Jen. I'm glad you mentioned that. Where do you think, as far as your perspective on your clients or companies in general, where are they getting it the most wrong in regards to hiring and keeping talent? Where they get it wrong is that it's never their fault. And it's interesting when I get brought in, it's typically not because things are going well with talent and everyone's happy. I don't I don't get that phone call. I get the phone call that says my team, you know, they don't work hard. They don't make any decisions on their own. They don't do this. They don't do that. And the, after someone tells me the whole long list of why everyone that works for them is horrible, I say, <laughs> well, where do you, what do you own in this? Like, you know, what decisions did you make that led to this? And they're like, what? No, I, I tell them, I tell them what to do and I tell them how to work. And I'm like, nope, you either hired the wrong person or you onboarded them wrong, or you gave them the wrong job, or you didn't develop them, you know, because if your entire team is failing, you fail to hire and develop and coach the team because not, you you know, because if they're all that horrible, then you at least made the wrong hiring decision. So somewhere in your process, you made the decision, but people don't take accountability. And I think if leaders started saying every person's success or failure is based on how I perform and I want to make sure that I'm accountable to their performance, I think things would really change. But that's the biggest problem. We blame it on the employee and not the employer. Wow. So you agree that the cause of the ridiculous voluntary churn numbers companies are experiencing are, it can be attributed to what Emily mentioned is that companies are being in denial that they have any culpability. Absolutely. They're in denial. And a lot of times people are so stuck in their own perception that they're not willing to see the truth in their company and they're not willing to hear the truth from their employees. And that is very dangerous. 
No, absolutely. Now, you always talk about the talent cliff. I love that term. Maybe you want to explain that to the audience of what the talent cliff means. Yeah. So the talent cliff is kind of this imaginary thing that happens in real life. So, you know, when we start our organization, our, you know, we have this great idea and it starts to take off and our skills and our desire and our knowledge is higher and stronger than what our production is, our sales, our revenue, um, because that's how it got off the ground in the first place, right? You know, you couldn't get it off the ground if you did, if you were not above where it was going. Then all of a sudden, because you and the team are so skilled that the product or service starts to take off. And then what happens is the employer starts to chase the revenue or chase the product and they stop focusing on making sure that the team is growing. They're too busy growing their financial results. And then what happens is the business starts to take off and the team does not grow. And so there's stress that comes into play. And when we're stressed, we don't manage in a way that's effective. We crisis manage. And then once we start crisis managing, our best people are going to be out of there. They're not going to be talked to that way. They're not going to be in a place where they don't get to use their brain. So they're down the road at your competitor. Then those who stick around are just, you know, kind of that yes person and aren't making good decisions and don't have the skill set. And then all of a sudden you're off the cliff. You know, your business has out arced, you know, the skill of your team because you didn't invest into the future of your team. And then as soon as that happens, then not only has your talent gone off the cliff, but typically so has your business. Wow. It's a really bad situation to be in. Now, a quick question about the relation between marketing and people management. You know, when you look at marketing companies, traditionally, a lot of businesses really don't have a solid marketing strategy. So they like to throw money at the problem, right? They look at many different methods and they try to A-B test them. Do you think that companies do this with people too, meaning they just want to throw out all this money and hire all these people to see who fits. And if it doesn't, it's okay, we'll just hire a new batch. Have you seen this before? Oh my gosh. Yes. I love talking about that. You know, people, I always say, you know, we threw payroll at the problem. And so often we look at a team and we'll be like, oh, they look really stressed and overworked. We should hire someone else. And so we throw payroll at the problem. But what if we stopped and said, hey, why is this team overworked and stressed? Do they have the resources they need from a skill set? Um, is there work that they're doing that doesn't matter? It's vanity work. You know, it's just nice to do stuff and it's stuff that doesn't impact the bottom line. And we could actually remove work off of them. Is there a process problem? Is there, you know, why is this team totally maxed out? And it's important to ask those questions first, because if you just see this team that's inefficient and you think they need help and you just throw that payroll at the problem and you don't ask those questions, well, chances are once you hire someone new, they're still going to have those same problems and you won't get the relief that you think you're going to get. And that's a big mistake people make. They just keep hiring people without stopping and thinking about, you know, what is the important work and how is that work getting done? And do we truly need another full-time person in this company. No, absolutely. And I'm, I believe that you've probably heard this excuse before from businesses you work with is Jen, listen, this sounds great. It makes complete sense, but I just don't have the time to slow down my business right now to address this. You ever, have you ever heard that before? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's when people say that, then my first question is, you know, tell me, um, what do you fear from 
what part of this process do you have fear about? Because that excuse shows up because the brain thinks it's overwhelmed because they don't know how to solve it. And so the brain, one of the things it does very well is it gives us excuses. And so as soon as someone says, you know what, I don't have time, then I know that their brain has some fear around the truth. And so their brain tells them they're in overwhelm and that they don't have the time. But um yeah, so we have to confront that fear so that the overwhelm goes away and clarity shows up. No, absolutely. And it's always great to get in, in those early adopters, those companies that are just in the Jurassic period and they want to be proactive, right? And don't fall in the same trap as their predecessors. So it's always a breath of fresh air to deal with those type of people. Now, I know you go on record, Jen, saying that running a high-performance team always boils down to two things, adopting a perfect fit hiring process and developing each hire according to his or her own individual and job-specific talent gaps. What is a perfect fit hiring process? So a perfect fit hiring process is one, getting clear on the work because we got to know who we're going to hire. But once we have clarity, when we start the interview process, we have to use a validated personality assessment. Because what that does is it allows us to then think about how will this person show up and do the work. And here at 304, we use OAD, Organization Analyst and Design. And it's a very simplistic, complicated tool. It's simplistic to take, but it gives you really complex information about someone. And then once you have that information, how someone makes decisions, how open they are to, you know, change and versatility, do they make their decisions analytically or with emotions? Then once you have that information, you can hire people whose traits match the needs of the job. Then you can use that information to develop and um, coach them throughout the employee life cycle. And so that information is invaluable, but so many companies don't take the time to use an assessment and and it's a piece of the pie that you can interview for. You can interview for skills and experience. But these this assessment, you can't interview someone and really figure out their natural adaptability. You can't figure out their natural decision style. Um, only a highly validated assessment can do that. Why are companies resistant to utilizing these assessments, do you think? You know, I think it's a couple of things. One is there's a lot of bad ones on the market. And some of them are... Um, big feel-good exercises. What's interesting is most assessments on the market actually are not EEOC compliant. And so, you know, they may be using something that's not really compliant to the hiring process. And then the big thing I hear is I took an assessment one time and it was totally used against me. And it, you know, they have like kind of some, you know, um, I guess some hatred towards an experience in their background around an assessment, but it's because they they weren't the company they were with or whatever they were doing. It wasn't a high quality assessment, and so it probably wasn't accurate. Um, but that's the big piece: is you've got to have an assessment that's real, that's easy to use, provides information that's usable to your organization, and is highly validated. No, it's great information. I'm glad you mentioned that. Now, I know that you help global brands build rock star teams to support rapid, sustainable growth. What does a rock star team look like? Is there a certain dynamic or formula or does it you know, vary for each individual company? You know, I think they'll vary a little bit, but at the core, they're always the same. And at the core, they're truth tellers. 
And, you know, one of the pieces of our education program is conversation intelligence and conversation intelligence helps us understand the neuroscience of the mind so that we can move people from fear to trust. And people often say, oh, well, that's a whoop woo and feel good. And, you know, you don't have, I need to tell the truth and I need to give feedback and really great, strong rockstar teams are truth tellers, but they do it in a way that builds upon what they have. They do it in a way that allows people to feel secure and have some safety in the environment. And they're not judged for telling the truth. And so, yeah. So if you want a rockstar team, get really comfortable with truth telling in a way that moves people towards trust. Yeah, no, trust is key. Absolutely. Now, Jen, I know that you have an unconventional approach to building innovative workforce development solutions. What makes your approach different than most and why is it so effective? What makes it different is that we are highly focused on making sure that the supervisors, the founders, whoever we're working with take full ownership of every single hiring decision. Now that doesn't mean they're showing up to the interviews and that doesn't mean they're, you know, you know, doing all the the work. It means that they have crystal clear um, vision of how people are going to work together. And then we help them create an environment that is consistent to that ambitious goal. So if your organization wants to be, um, you know, focused on kind of um, entrepreneurial spirit, then how do you lead in a way that creates that? And so we really focus on helping executives understand how to lead an environment that they want people to work in and not an organic, you know, whatever happens, happens, but getting incredibly purposeful. And when the executives are purposeful about building the environment and they lead in a way that creates that environment, then that will start going, trickling down through, you know, the ranks, but it also will create the next generation leaders for them because our, our teams will learn to lead in the way in which we lead. And so if you're leading in a poor way and you're leading in a way that causes turnover, guess what? The, the generation behind you, then ne your next leaders are going to do the exact same thing because that's how you've shown them successful leadership acts. And so we really spend a ton of time with creating environments and leading in a way that creates that. That's great. It's great. Now, conversational intelligence, is that similar to neuro-linguistic programming or is it something completely different? It's something a little different. Um, I love NLP. I've studied it myself. And NLP is... Um, you know, that focuses, it's a, um, a therapy method, actually. Um, conversation intelligence is about understanding the words that we use and how they fire off chemical reactions within our mind. And so what's interesting is, you know, our brain has one job and that's to keep us alive. And so it's very fear-based. And when we go into fear, our primitive brain takes over. And when, you know, we were, you know, early in our evolution, our caveman days, you know, we had a lot of fear around being kicked out of the tribe because if we were kicked out of the tribe, we would not live. And because we couldn't by ourselves provide housing and safety and food and shelter and warmth, all the stuff that we need to stay alive. And so when your brain feels like it's being judged or you're not being in included in the workplace, or you might lose your job, or, you know, someone doesn't think that, you know, you, sh you belong there, or someone doesn't think that your truth is a truth willing to listen to, your primitive brain kicks in, 
Because again, it feels odd, like you're not part of the tribe. But what's interesting about that, as soon as your primitive brain turns on, your prefrontal cortex turns off. Now that's a problem because your prefrontal cortex is where new ideas comes from. It's where we learn. It's where collaboration happens and where, where we need people. We need the people using that piece of their brain. And the way we were taught to lead, you know, actually is very fear-based. And so, you know, if you're, you know, think about a high performing sales team, that leader may be, I'm just going to be on everyone until they get their quotas in. And, you know, did you call this person and did you do this and did you do that? Well, well, in that type of language, you've actually turned off their creative piece and you need that. If you want them to find a new way to get new cells in the door, if you want them to learn your methodology. And so you have to approach it in a different way. You have to say things like, hey, we're not making our quota. Let's 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 talk about that. Um, what ideas are you using that are working? What are not working? Are you open to, you know, bouncing ideas back and forth with me until we find the idea that will work for your style? And again, that's about collaboration and it will start to open up that prefrontal cortex where that person can actually learn and come up with new ideas. That's awesome. Love that. Now, Jen, I know part of your job is helping management teams negotiate the politics and find the words to get everyone to play nicely. I would love for you to tell me about the politics that you've run into with your clients and what are they struggling with to overcome in regards to politics and getting everyone to play nice. So the thing that, again, this goes all back to fear, um, you know, the brain is a funny little thing. So what's interesting is, you know, I think that when we were all young in our career, we looked at executives and we thought, wow, when I became an executive, I'd have all this confidence and I would be so secure in my position. Like, you know, we have this vision of what it's like to be an executive. What's funny when you get to the top, actually, um, we show that the fear kicks in and because there's a lot more at stake, right? The higher the risk, the higher the fear. And what I find, and I found this when I worked in corporate America, I found, find this in small, medium, and large companies that I work with, when the executives start to show up to the table, they are so focused on protecting themselves and their team. Again, they're protecting their tribe because we are tribal humans, that they don't necessarily think about protecting the entire company. And that's where the infighting comes. That's where the finger pointing comes. That's where the blame comes because you're trying to, you know, kind of prove why you should not ever be voted off the island. And so we have to make sure that as leaders, if we're leading a group of executives, that we are incredibly focused on the right tribe, and that is the organization. And then all decisions are made at that level. And then each person is responsible for making sure their sub-tribe comes to the table accurately. But unfortunately, that rarely happens. Almost always, everyone is protecting themselves and their work and their team, and they're not protecting the organization. No, absolutely. And we talked about the fact that a lot of these business owners and leaders are addicted to being right and would love for you, Jen, to talk to us quickly about the seven deadly sins of leadership no one's talking about and how to fix them with conversational intelligence. Yeah. So what is fascinating when you look at the brain um, and, you know, when we all have the, a little bit of an addiction to being right, I mean, all of us have a little bit of it. And the reason why is when we are right, our chemical in our mind, the dopamine gets fired off. And this is the same type of dopamine hit you would get if you were addicted to shopping or sugar or alcohol, whatever your another addiction could be. And we all know about addictions is that the more you get of that dopamine, mean hit, the more you need next time for that same level of high. 
And so if someone is addicted to being right, they're addicted to that dopamine hit when they're right, over time, they have to become more right to get that same level of satisfaction. And so these are those people that early in your career, you're like, hey, man, they were so collaborative. They were up and comer. They were always nailing it. And now that they're an executive, you know, they're kind of a jerk and they don't listen to people and, you know, they don't want to hear the truth anymore. And it's because they the truth takes away their addiction. It takes away their, their drug of choice. And so when people start getting addicted to being right, um, it shows up in a lot of ways, but some of the ways when you think of the seven deadly sins, like the classic seven deadly sins, um, you know, you think about gluttony and gluttony, you know, they need that dopamine hit. They're gluttonous for that dopamine hit. So they'll fight with you over a color of a crayon just to be right. Um, you know, they have wrath. And so, you know, when you think about the deadly seven, deadly sin of wrath, it's, when someone is addicted to being right and someone on their team comes to them with a the truth and tries to tell them um, factual information and then someone's like, no, I don't believe that. That's not true, you know, because it jeopardizes their status, then there's a lot of wrath. And I think that's one of the biggest sins that people who are addicted to being right, they're, they're, they're tyrants. Everyone has to believe and think the way I tell them to think. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, greed around being um, looked at as someone with status. There's a lot of greed around, I want all of the wins. I'm not taking any of the losses um, because again, a loss says that they weren't right and it takes away their addiction. What do you think, Jen, which of the sins are the, are businesses struggling with the most out of all of them? Oh my gosh, that's a hard question and a good one because everyone has kind of their own things. I think it's wrath. You know, when I look at leaders who are stressed out, when I look at leaders who aren't focused on truth telling, you know, that's pretty dangerous. You know, oftentimes when I get called in to work with an executive and, you know, there's been some complaints about their leadership and I, you know, ask them, when was the last time you learned something from your team? Oh, you know, they're not smart. I tell them how to think. I tell them what to do. Well, then why'd you hire them? Like, if you cannot learn from your team, why are they here? And one of the fun things that we do is, you know, we have, we think of a couple of really hard questions to ask their team. We bring their team in. And I um, kind of set as a quiet observer and I have that leader ask a difficult question. And if everyone in the room kind of looks at each other and says nothing and then looks at the leader, it's because they're waiting for that leader to tell them how they're supposed to think. Because they know if they don't, you know, believe and talk the way the leader has told them and don't believe in what the leader has told them that there is wrath and there is retaliation. And it's a really dangerous because if people are not comfortable telling you the truth about your business, then you're never going to get off the ground. No, absolutely. And you have to wonder, you know, when it comes to leadership, mindset and self-awareness is so important. Do you think that because I know you're so big on personality testing, do you think it's just in their DNA, like most business owners struggle with these things and it's something they cannot overcome because it's who they are at their core, or it's a byproduct of the environment they've created through becoming a business owner? Oh, it, you know what? There's It depends on the person and there's a combination in there. But what I have found is some of those toughest cases, they do not change unless there is a crisis big enough to force the change which is how all addictions work, right? right? No one wants to give up their addiction until the pain 
of um, staying in their addiction is greater than the pain of giving it up. And so some of my toughest cases have been people who had to kind of hit rock bottom, bottom, you know, whether that's they crashed their company into the ground, um, whether that is they lost, you know, like a very important relationship to them. Because if you're addicted to being right and you have all these tendencies at work, there's chances that you act this way at home too. And so, you know, it usually has to be a pretty big crisis for some of the toughest cases to change. Yeah, you bring up a great point. I've always wanted to look at a study between managing a business, how it connects to managing your home. And if there is a, a certain connection, as if maybe somebody can run their home perfectly, but they can't run a business to save their life, right? But you usually see they're interconnected. You know, you watch all these shows. I watched the other day, Restaurant Impossible. And, you know, if the business is tanking, the, usually the marriage and the family is tanking as well. So it's very interesting. It is, you know, and I always tell people, you know, leadership, how you treat it, people doesn't end at the door when they go home at night. And so, you know, think about yourself as a leader as you're impacting the future generation, you're impacting communities. So if you treat someone really horrible all day at work and then they go home and they sit down with to have dinner with their family, they're beat down their children, their spouse, the people around them are going to feel that. But if you treat people and say you had a tough feedback situation, but you work through it in a way that person feels like, you know, hey, I, you know, I've learned something and I'm going to be 10 times better tomorrow. And they go home with excitement and energy, then their kids are going to feel that excitement and they're going to have a better evening. And, you know, it provides their children and their families, you know, emotional safety. And so, your leadership doesn't end at the door. People carry those feelings and how you've spoken to them home and it impacts their families. No, I agree hundred percent. And a lot of times these uh, business owners are unfortunately disconnected from those people. So they don't see the impact it's causing, you know, Jen, it's been wonderful. Really appreciate the time and the insight. Any last words of wisdom or anything you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up? So one of the things I'd love to share with the audience is a great um, exercise to create innovation in your workplace, and it's based in conversation intelligence. And in fact, we have all the instructions on our website. You can download it for free. But if you want to have a highly innovative conversation with your team, make sure that you set it up for innovation. And at its basics, instead of saying something like, hey, let's go and we're going to brainstorm on why product XYZ is down 10%, because again, that creates fear. You want to say something like, hey, you know, let's be honest, this product is down. We have to figure it out. So what I want you to do, meet me in, you know, whatever room at whatever time or on Zoom. And I want you to bring me the most outlandish, craziest, ridiculous ideas you can think of to drive this product. And in fact, I'm going to give awards out for the most ridiculous ideas. Because what you've told those individuals is you have you have removed the fear that they're their idea will be judged and you've opened up their prefrontal cortex to new ideas and innovation. And that is how you get the ideas to drive your business. But again, we have a full guide and all the instructions at 304 Coaching on how to have one of those meetings. There you go. Now, Jen, very last question. It's just a personal question just to get to know you just a little bit better. So you're going to be on an island. You're going to move off of Texas and move to a tropical island for the rest of your life. You can only bring one book, one movie, and one album. What would they be? Oh, the album's easy. That would be Fleetwood Mac Rumors. 
Um, the movie would probably be anything by Wes Anderson. I'm a big Wes Anderson um, fan. And then, gosh, the book is the hardest because I am an avid reader and a book collector, and I'm I get really emotionally attached to my books. I think they're all my friends. Um, so that's like picking, you know, my favorite child. Um, gosh, I don't know. One of my all time favorite books is To Kill a Mockingbird. I, you know, oh. I've read it so many times. I'd probably take it and keep reading it. Nice, I love it. Now, who I have to ask you, who is Wes Anderson? Ah, uh, Wes Anderson. He's a great director, and he did um, Hotel Budapest. He did. Oh. Um, Royal Tenenbaums. Um, so yeah, so he does some of those fun, quirky um, movies. Nice. Jen, it's been a pleasure. Now, how can everyone get in touch with you, connect with you and learn more? So you can connect with me at 304coaching.com. We have a lot of free resources and fun stuff for you there. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn and we can continue the conversation at Jen Thornton, ACC. Wonderful, Jen. It's been a pleasure. I had a great time. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Have a wonderful New Year's holiday. Keep up the good work. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. All right. Thank you for spending time with us today. We encourage you to join the many businesses that we have helped to achieve their objectives, align their departments, and increase their revenue. You can start by reaching out to us at results at onebrokencog.com. Together, we will make small adjustments that will lead to major impacts to your business, your culture, and your bottom line.